welcome to this week's episode of Khaki Malarkey. Today we are joined by the lovely Sophie Ambler. Sophie is a lecturer in late medieval British and European history, deputy director for the Centre of War and Diplomacy, and a research fellow at the Ruskin. She's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and the secretary of the Pipe Royal Society. And Sophie is here today to talk about her new book, The Song of Simon de Montfort, which she has kindly sent to us, and I must say it's absolutely beautiful. I love the front cover. Sophie, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Good. No, thank you for coming on. It's great to talk to you. So first of all, we asked all of our guests if they can summarise their book in 30 seconds. Do you think you can give it a go? No pressure. <laughs> I'll give it a go. So the book is called The Song of Simon de Montfort, England's First Revolutionary and the Death of Chivalry. And it tells the story of um, the Earl of Leicester, Simon de Montfort, who was born in about 1208 and died in 1265 at the Battle of Evesham. And it describes his turbulent life in England and across um, Christendom, both as a crusader and as leader of England's first revolution between 1258 and 1265. Wow, fair play. You've got a good summary in there. I reckon that was about 15 seconds, is that? Yeah, roughly. I think It'll be longer if you like. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. Uh, bang on, perfect. We have some people that just go in and they do it in about five seconds, and it's like, wow, <laughs> it quite shocks us because we're like, oh, okay, here yeah, we go. cool, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> so, Sophie, just to kind of start off, we don't want to give too much anyway because we want people to buy the book, yeah, um, and read into it. But in a very general sense, I guess not like I summarised, but if you could kind of give us a who, what, when, where of Simon de Montfort, because your whole book is structured around his life, isn't it? So, you know, can you pick up on some of the key aspects of, you know, what you focus in on the, with the book? So he's probably best known to people today as um, the, the sort of godfather of democracy or the House of Commons. That's the rather high-blown terms that, that are sometimes used for him, um, because he held in 1265 a very famous um, to which he called men from the towns as well as knights from the shires. Um, and this has been seen as a landmark in, in the sort of the growth of parliamentary democracy. So that's probably why he's best known. So the book talks about these kind of themes and, and the rise of, of parliament and so on. But really, it's looking at his career in a broad perspective. So it's partly looking at his leadership of this revolutionary period between 1258 and 1265. This was the first time that a, a cohort of, of barons and bishops and knights had decided that they could do without the king effectively, and that yeah. they could put the king to one side and they could govern by council and by parliament. Um, so that this was a revolutionary period, so, so we, we look at that. But also he crusaded in, um, in the Holy Land um, and he turned this revolution and this political cause into a holy war. So very much for his life, the themes of, of politics and his military career and his religious life and his, his beliefs as a crusader were all intertwined inextricably. Wow. That's so interesting. That I, so, so I actually work in a school and I do a lot of history classes with year sevens who are actually learning about the Crusades at the moment. Um, so it's great timing with that. And there was one particular crusade that I would like to ask you about and I say this every single episode at some point, please bear with me on the pronunciation because I am terrible. <laughs> but there was one called the, the Albigensian. Did I get that right, Sophie? Yeah, <laughs> the Albigensian Crusade. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, Simon's contribution to that? Yep. So this was um, a crusade in the early 13th century in the south of France, uh, in yeah. Languedoc, um, that was launched by Pope Innocent III against yeah. the so-called Cathar heretics. Now, Simon um, was actually only about a year old when the crusade began. His oh. father, also called Simon de Montfort, um, the family have a, have a rather small <laughs> menu of names. That they like I was going to say, very English thing. <laughs> what historical figure so boring with names? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they have family pride as well, so um, you just have to number them all very carefully. Yeah. <laughs> the historians have to agree a system of numbering, which, which they don't always do, um, just to make it more confusing. Yeah. Um, so his, his father was elected leader of the Albigensian Crusade in 1209. So when Simon was about a year old, his mother, Alice de Montmorency, brought him from the family lands just outside of Paris mm. down to the south of France to join this crusade where his father um, was leader. And so he spent the first 10 years or so of his life with his mother and his father and his brothers 
and his uh, sister growing up in a war zone in the Albigensian Crusade. Mm. Um, and th th this came to an end for him really in, in 1218 when his father was killed um, outside the walls of Toulouse um, in a, a very nasty fashion. His, his head was split open by, by a boulder slung from a trebuchet um, and, and that was the end of him. So Simon, this is, this is how he grew up. That's quite a traumatic childhood, sorry. That's, that is yeah. quite the start no, of life. No, it is very traumatic. I was just going to ask Sophie, how did that shape then the rest of his life going into it, especially with kind of crusades and stuff? Did that have an impact on him? I think it had a huge impact on him. It's partly because... Um, partly growing up in that way, I suppose, with um, all of his family um, dedicated to this crusade, but also in the way that it sort of shaped family identity for, for the Montfort family afterwards. So they, they probably hadn't been a famous crusading family before the Albigensian Crusade. In the 13th century, if you could trace your family heritage, crusaders, particularly the First Crusade, which was the big successful crusade and None of the others that came afterwards uh, were particularly successful. Um, if you could trace your family heritage back to the First Crusade, it was something to really be celebrated. Um, and, you know, stories would be told about your ancestors and so on. For the Montfort, they don't seem to have taken part in, in much of this crusading activity. Um, there might have been um, uh, an uncle who, who was possibly killed at the Battle of Hattin in 1187, which um, doesn't really get them any further um, towards those credentials. So when the Albigensian Crusade came along, it was a big opportunity really for family to really be part of, of um, you know, sort of the big parade of names of, of Crusaders. So the fact that Simon the Elder was elected leader was a massive deal for the family. So um, for his children growing up, they were growing up with a father who, who was one of the most famous figures in Europe, who was celebrated across Christendom as the leader of this crusade and as the sort of great um, military leader and a great son of the church. So um, there was a lot to live up to um, in that sense. And also it meant that um, when young Simon, um, if we can call him our Simon, I think. Really, um, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> when he was growing up, um, after his father's death, he was growing up listening to the stories about his father's deeds. So very much this, this moulded him or encouraged him to follow in his father's um, footsteps, um, both as a crusader, but also as the leader of an enterprise. It's not quite good enough for the Montfort at this point now just to be on an expedition. They have to be in charge of it. Yeah. And the particular sort of characteristics that, that Simon the Elder was described as showing, um, we also see these picked up by Simon the Younger when he sort of builds his reputation for himself. Um, as, as the leader of um, this English political revolution. So we know that obviously Simon does build up a huge reputation for himself, and I think particularly to a point now, I don't want to give too much away again, because we do want people to read the book, but to the extent that he falls out with King Henry III. So how does he, what, A, get himself to a kind of high up position to fall out with the king? And obviously he must have done something pretty major to miff off the King of England. Definitely. So um, he's, after his father's death, um, in the Albigensian Crusade, you know, he was a younger son, he didn't have a great deal of land, but his family had a claim to the Earldom of Leicester, and um, his father hadn't been allowed to take this up because of the wars between England and France, it wasn't allowed. But Simon saw this opportunity when he came of age at 21 to um, see if he could lay claim to her. And so he came to England and he ingratiated himself with Henry III, um, who was the king at the time, the son of King John, um, who was looking for, for, for good men um, to help him sort of rebuild his kingdom and rebuild his continental domains after the, the disasters of King John's um, reign. So Simon came along at the right time and he, he found his way into court. He um, became quite close to the king. He became one of um, Henry's counsellors. And then in the late 1230s, he um, uh, got very close to the king's sister, Eleanor, um, and they got married and started a family. So in, in many ways, this was all looking very, you know, all looking very rosy for Henry and Simon and Eleanor um, at this point. Um, where it starts to go wrong seems to be not that long after um, Henry 
um, sorry, Simon and Eleanor are married, um, where there's a big argument between Henry and Simon, a very public argument. And the cause of it seems to be that um, Simon was heavily in debt. Um, he didn't have a, a huge landed estate. He had to borrow money um, to, to um, finance his claim to the Oldham. Um, and also to um, prepare for, for a crusade. So he needed to borrow this money and he needed a, a, a pledge, a surety, somebody to um, stand behind the loan and guarantee it. And he named the king, Henry III, but he didn't ask Henry's permission first. That's a and it's a bit move. like um, putting somebody's name down. It's a, yeah, it's a bit like putting someone's name down as a guarantor in a mortgage agreement for a house but without asking them no it's a bit um, cheeky god it's it's a little bit cheeky i mean you, you can sort of think well he he would have assumed that henry would um support him but it's a bit of a liberty to take isn't it yeah, um, definitely so so henry was just really furious and um then he shouted down simon in public and he said um wow. you know i i never um, i don't regret anything than allowing you to come to england and allowing you to marry my sister and he said, I only did it because you seduced her before the marriage and I had to let it go oh, ahead. Wow. And whether that's true or not, we don't know. But um, so this, is, this is obviously, it is it's very soap opery. I'm picturing like um, a scene of like Made in Chelsea where they're like screaming yeah. each other over a dinner table, which is really posh <laughs> people having a pop at each other. <laughs> it was a proper drama and, and it gets worse because at this point, Henry wanted to throw Simon in prison. He wanted to put him in the Tower oh. of London and he was all set to, to have him seized um, yeah. by a posse and thrown in the tower. But um, the king's uh, brother stepped in and you can imagine the embarrassment it would have caused to, to their sister, Eleanor, yeah. Simon's oh. wife, as, as well as putting one of your earls in the Tower of London is, is you know, it's a big move. So Yeah, it's just not a good look, isn't it? It's not the reputation you want to have. No, and, and thankfully Simon was spared that and Eleanor was spared that. But then they just saw how furious the king was. Um, so they got in a boat and left for France there and then. Yeah. Um, just oh, just wow. fled. Well, yeah. that kind of goes into... Oh, sorry, Phoebe. No, I was going to say, can you tell us more about Eleanor? I really want to know more yeah. about how, like, their life. I was interested in that chapter. You've got a chapter on love in the book, which I love. <laughs> well, she's, um, she's, yeah. she's a really interesting figure. Um, so she was... Um, uh, born born to King John and Isabella of Angoulême, but never yeah. really uh, probably knew her parents. Mm. She was born into the tumultuous time of um, the, the Civil War uh, following uh, Magna Carta and, and, and King John's um, disastrous reign. Um, so she was um, uh, brought up um, by by guardians, she was she was very well educated. I was going to say it's quite common for the women, the female children, to be sent off, isn't it, to to be educated somewhere else? Um, well, yes, or I suppose all all children in in some ways would have had their own particular education. So yeah. whether that was military educations or, or yeah. literary educations. Um, so she she also would have had you know a religious um, education upbringing as well. Um, but she was actually married at the age of about 12 to oh, wow. um, one of the English um, noblemen to the Earl of Pembroke, um, William Marshall Jr., son of the famous uh, William Marshall. And he was, he was quite a bit older than her, but that wasn't unusual. Oh. And so the marriage seems to have been going pretty well, um, but he died, um, he died quite young still, and she was widowed at the age of 16. Oh. And oh, she decided to, um, to take a vow of chastity and the so why, why did she do that and it's hard to say but it might have been to sort of remove herself from the marriage market because if yeah. you imagine it as a widow you have actually quite a lot of status you have control uh, yeah. of your lands and your wealth you've got your fate in your own hands whereas yeah. if you're um uh, an unmarried single woman you know you your, it, it, you can be married off for, for political purposes so she took this vow of chastity um, but then uh, Simon de Montfort came along oh, and the vow of chastity just, just uh, <laughs> was forgotten. Um, but there's, the key. There's, a fantastic, <laughs> um, there's a fantastic book um, about Eleanor de Montfort by um, uh, Professor Louise Wilkinson um, at Lincoln. Um, she's written a, a biography of Eleanor, um, which I highly recommend. And she's also written um, to go with that. 
um, a new edition of Eleanor's household role. And this, oh. this will become important in the story, you know, if we, we talk about what happened in the Civil War mm. in England in the 1260s. Um, for, for noble women around this time, we don't always have a huge amount of sources um, and sometimes we're reliant on, on the occasional letter what chronicles say about them, some government records. But in Eleanor's case, her household role for um, 1265 survives. And this records her spending. What does she spend money on? Um, how many people were in her household? What was she buying? Um, what were her activities during the Civil War in this period? Um, so it's an absolutely fantastic resource that, that shines, shines light on her her activities in this war and um so there's there's a new edition of that for the pipe royal society i have to get in a plug for the pipe royal society as well of course, plug away uh, so um but by louise wilkinson um which is a fantastic resource for anyone interested in in uh, medieval noble women and also um uh, including medieval noble women at war um so if you join the pipe royal society by visiting our website, you can join for ten pounds. Okay, uh, nice. yeah. We'll post the link on our book. Twitter. Brilliant, thank you. <laughs> That's right. Head for the link, guys. Just got that up. Brilliant. Oh, I love that. It sounds so interesting. I don't feel like we don't talk about medieval women as much, or at least there's not as much covered. So it's brilliant. Like you say, it's hard to find the sources, isn't it? There's yeah. just no information. Yeah, you have to be a bit more creative, and I think yeah. there's some really interesting um, work um, that's that's been done in recent times, um, both on on um, Eleanor de Montfort by by Louise Wilkinson. Um, Maud Mortimer is a really interesting character in this story as well. Um, she was the nemesis of Simon and Eleanor Ooh. de Montfort, and there's a fantastic article about her by um, Emma Cavell at Swansea. So that really goes to show if you really dig around for the sources and you're lucky that some really good sources survive, you can really yeah. illuminate these women's lives. Let's come back to Simon, obviously, as our main man of today. <laughs> and in terms of, a, yeah, our Simon, of a military leader, um, I think you obviously mentioned that Simon went back over to France. He also had a foothold in Jerusalem where he was kind of known as you know, the Crusader Kingdom of it. How did he manage to obtain such like international positions in a way, or, or European positions really? You know, because I can imagine at that time it might have been quite hard to do so. Yes, it's a little bit, it's not quite a mystery, but I think we have to dig around a bit to, to, and use a bit of intuition to work out how he ended up with this big reputation. So he was invited in 1241 whilst he was on crusade as part of um, the Baron's Crusade, as it's called, um, to be regent of Jerusalem. He was invited by the Barons of Jerusalem to be regent. And we don't know what he did crusade to to impress them there's no record of a battle for instance although he did lose several men quite a few men were lost on this expedition so whether that was in in military activity or, or, or disease we don't know so he um obviously impressed and he was still you know, probably in his early 30s or something at this point so he's quite young mm. um he had a famous name of course um carrying the same name as this yeah. celebrated um, leader of the Albigensian Crusade. His elder brother, Amory de Montfort, was the, um, one of the, the leaders of the Baron's Crusade. He was actually taken captive at the Battle of Gaza, um, another very disastrous Crusader battle um, of this period. He was released by the point that Simon was invited to become regent, so perhaps he had a hand in, in that. Um, their cousin, Philip de Montfort, that side of the family, their cousins had uh, heritage in Jerusalem as well. So Philip de Montfort has set himself up again there. So perhaps he helped. So you can see how the, the entire family was connected across England, France and the Holy Land. So that probably mm -hmm. really helped to bolster Simon's position. We don't really know much about his military um, experience or reputation in, in the, that early part of his career, although he's always celebrated as a great military leader. There's a possibility that um, shortly after he was married, he, he served with the Emperor Frederick II in, on an Italian campaign um, for a few weeks, um, perhaps in a siege, but 
it's that's only a, a supposition but he seems to have, have built up this very strong reputation so that by the early 1250s when the king of france was off on crusade um, and the barons of france needed a regent for their kingdom they also invited simon to be regent of their kingdom so that's that's a popular guy yeah and and i mean just that that's a big deal that's two invitations from your peers from from the great barons of a kingdom to be their their ruler so that says something probably about how he was seen by um men of his own own rank Mm, they absolutely loved him yeah fantastic yeah he sounds like a guy that commanded a lot of respect he was just given Mm. kind of many titles yeah definitely and he's um he was also um at this at this time in the late 1240s appointed by king henry iii as governor of gascony of english held um gascony in in bun he was um he was very strong-handed um governor of of this territory and the Gascons didn't like it at all. And they complained to Henry III. I think you can see that it's this really strong-handed governorship of Gascony that turns the relationship between Henry and Simon a bit sour, yeah. but turns relationships with the Gascons sour. But on the other hand, really impresses the barons of France. They say, <laughs> oh. You see what you've done in Gascony? You yeah. put those Gascons in their place. We know what the Gascons are like. You know, they're kind of... Yeah, but they love <laughs> They need a tough hand and, and we see that and we're impressed and we think um, you're, you're the man for the job so um, it, it depends what you think of as yeah. somebody who would be a good ruler doesn't it and yeah. if, you, if you see it as um, you expect somebody to be tough and um, perhaps a little bit uncompromising but also um, a, a strong military leader and somebody who can walk into a room and command you know the awe and respect of everyone in the room um as well as perhaps frightening people on demand (laughs) and also having a very sharp tongue and putting people in their place Mm. um nice bit of sass as well love that so i guess we should get to the main event now really shouldn't we simon's civil war can you tell us kind of what happened here the the thing that he's most remembered for yeah so it's a um it's a turbulent story and it all kicks off in 1258 not with war at the beginning, but with a court coup and a, and a secret court coup where um, Simon and a group of other um, earls and barons and knights march on Henry III's hall at Westminster and demand that he hand over the government to them. And they'll set up a council and they'll hold regular parliaments and they'll put in place a whole series of reforms um, in the kingdom to provide better access to justice for, for ordinary people to cut out corruption and things like this. Um, and these these reforms um, were known as the provisions of Oxford. And this was um, the provisions of Oxford were the great cause that was championed by Simon de Montfort and his um, and his party. Mm. Um, and that represented both sort of anti-corruption reforms, but also governing by a council and parliament with yeah. the somewhere off at the side. So this was the cause they were championing. It was in place for a couple of years and, and Henry eventually managed to recover power in the early 1260s. And there's, there's you know, there's a tussle um, for, for power over um, this period. And it all really kicks off in 1263 when um, it turns to violence and um, disaffected, um, barons in England who were fed up not only with the fact that Henry had completely thrown out the provisions of Oxford, the good and the bad and and, and everything else, but also, um, you know, they had their own reasons for um, uh, stirring up trouble. And they thought, you know, what do we need? We need somebody to to come and lead us and be champion of these reforms. And Simon de Montfort had throughout this tussle for power and throughout Henry's recovery of power, he'd always insisted on staying true to the provisions of Oxford. Mm-hmm. He'd sworn an oath. He wasn't going to yeah. abandon the oath. Um, so he was seen um, as, as the right man for this job again. And also it's in the same mould as, as that request in the Kingdom of France and, and before that in Jerusalem, that he's seen as someone yeah. who can lead. 
So um, he, he comes in 1263 to lead uh, a campaign of violence across England, attacking the lands of um, royalists. Um, even uh, at one point, the Bishop of Hereford, who's a, who's a royalist um, councillor, is kidnapped from his own cathedral um, and dragged off um, to, to imprisonment. So oh my it was, God. Yeah, it's it pretty shocking at, at the time. And it probably did a little bit to undermine kind of the moral credibility of the provisions of Oxford um, doing, doing things like this. But uh, so it kicks off in 1263 and it, it leads to um, battle in 1264 at the Battle yeah. of Lewis, mm -hmm. um, which is the, the first time, as far as we know, that, that Simon was involved in an actual pitched battle as opposed to sieges and skirmishes. Yeah. That's at least as far as we know um, and it goes very well for Simon. And this is what leads him to being in a position of power in England, am I right Sophie? Yeah, so with the victory at the Battle of Lewis in 1264, that allows him to take a captive and other members of the royal family captive, so Prince Edward, who's the future Edward I, is also held prisoner. Mm. And this means that, that he and his party can do what, what they want. And so they set up a new council with a, with a written constitution, um, a council of nine men to, to make all decisions about the government of the kingdom and carrying on the operation of parliament as well. And this is intended to, to last for the foreseeable future. So this is what that victory allows him to do um, politically um, and, and militarily, um, because he has command of, of royal resources now at this point. Um, but also um, for those who were supporting him, but also perhaps those who were on the fence, they can look at this victory as a statement about God's support for the cause. Because right, yeah. in, in the Middle Ages, it's not the strong who win battles. It's no. just it's, it's those who God um, has picked. Yeah. Yeah. Come back to the divine right kind of yeah. uh, belief yes it's it's a little bit like a trial by battle you know it's it's basically <laughs> it, it, uh, the same as as would operate in a court of uh, in a court at this time yeah uh, because god will, will support the person who is telling the truth and who is just and um the person who is either um unjust or lying uh, will, will um feel uh you know feel the, the brunt of, of god's disfavor I'll get their karma <laughs> Yeah, so so um, actually, the, the sort of the the setup of this battle helped people to see it in those terms because um, Simon was Simon's forces were outnumbered, mm. and a lot of his knights were very young men and quite inexperienced. And he um, also at, at this point he he really turns the cause into um, a holy war. So you've got a you've got a small army against the um, fighting against the odds that wins, which has to be seen as, as miraculous. And then you've got the fact that all of his men are, are sworn as crusaders on the morning of the battle. So they believe that they're fighting um, for, for God and the church and that they have that, that divine justice um, behind them. So you can see why after um, this battle, people would see it as a justification for his cause. Well, I can definitely see how that works because obviously this, position of power and I guess the belief in their course lasted for 15 months but it did come to a bit of an end really in August 1265 didn't it so how did it come to an end for Simon? Well um, in a way he, he sowed the seeds of his own downfall in this in this fa famous parliament of the early months of 1265 which is um, what in many ways he's, he's celebrated for mm. um, he, he took this opportunity of his of his position and um, of holding the parliament to seize a great deal of land from Prince Edward, the heir to the throne, um, for his for his family. So you can see how he might have justified this to himself and to his supporters. Um, he did need the land in order to, to um, buttress his position and, and support his family in their in this position um, in the long term. Um, but this was a parliament where they. Uh, where the Monfortians confirmed Magna Carta and confirming Magna Carta, the most famous clause of which says, 
um, nobody should be deprived of their property um, without <laughs> judgment at the same time as depriving the heir to the throne of <laughs> yeah awkward uh, it's, it's, yeah it's not really a good move so, um, actually most people went along with it as far as we can see oh. but one or two um, didn't and one of those was the Earl of Gloucester who was a tremendously wealthy uh, and powerful um, magnate um, who, who stormed off from the parliament and, and um, sort of set up opposition to Simon um, but he left in Simon's camp his younger brother Thomas who was apparently faithful to Simon um, but who was actually plotting um, oh. probably with his brother to um, help Edward um, escape from from prison oh, wow. so it's all, it's all very dramatic a twist yes twists twist and turns Fantastic. so um uh, Gloucester and Prince Edward now together that they, they were able to raise um, a big army and a very you know very impressive army and they were both incredibly capable leaders in, in their own right so they they led a very effective campaign particularly through the Welsh marches um, and, and the southwest um, and they cut off Simon and his much smaller army um, behind the line of the seven behind the line of the seven and, and Simon was stuck in Hereford so he, he, he made a bid to escape. He marched his men for three days um, straight and through the course of the night um, to try and escape from the Earl of Gloucester's army. Um, he made it as far as Evesham and thought he was probably going to be safe if he could, he could get further, um, perhaps down to London or to Kenilworth. Um, but it wasn't to be. And um, Edward and Gloucester brought up their army um, to Evesham and the Monfortians had to make a decision at that point of, of whether they try and make a run for it or whether they fight and they, they decided to fight. And I think it, there's something here about Simon, you know, as a crusader, who, most of his family had been killed um, oh. fighting in crusades and, and probably if you've got one decision left that you can make and that's in your power that's it, it was you know the last opportunity to take his fate into his own hands um yeah. perhaps so his his art his army is mostly but almost entirely wiped out oh wow wow do you think that was a kind of like in his head he thought oh it's this this is destiny this is this is what's meant to happen you know yeah it's it's very hard um to prove i mean that there, there is a um there is an eyewitness account of the morning of the battle that was probably written by oh, wow. one of the monks of Evesham Abbey. It's an amazing source and um, yeah. discovered in the late 90s. And this, this um, writer was in, in the precinct of Evesham Abbey on the morning of the battle, listening mm. to the conversations that were going on between Simon and his men. Oh, and God. so he gives us a lot of you know, insight in, into yeah. what was being discussed. And I think if you look at the, the, the military situation, you know, from the point of view of, of Simon de Montfort, who was a very capable, well-respected uh, general. The Battle of Lewis the previous year, he'd managed to win that through very good tactics with mm. a smaller force by claiming the high ground. And, 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 and that's so often the key, isn't it, getting that high ground? Exactly. And, and the way that he deployed his men, you know, made all the difference. So he knew what he was doing. And at Evesham, he knew that he had no opportunity to do any of that and he'd be fighting uphill. He had a much smaller force. He had no capacity to dictate any of the terms of the battle. And it would, in, in this period in the 13th century, just battles are generally common, not, not in Christendom, not in, in, in Western Europe, um, because they're so risky, because anyone knows that even if you've got a bigger a bigger army just one thing could go wrong one tiny thing could go wrong and, and yeah. that's um disaster so people generally avoid battle if they can possibly do it and they only go they only choose generally if they to, to enter into battle if they think they've got a really good chance mm. um, of, of winning and at evesham i think that there was not a great chance at all um, of simon winning and i think perhaps he could have hoped for for a miracle but I, I find it very unlikely that he was expecting a miracle because no. you know, um, that's that's not how these things work. As much yeah. as God favours the strong, he favours yeah. to help themselves as well. So I, I think putting all of this together and looking at his family history... Um, well, yeah, the childhood, like we said, we talked about earlier about his traumatic mm. childhood just being constantly in war. 
So it was kind of like come full circle, started in a war, ended in a war. Exactly, yes. Yeah, and, and you know, death in war as well, which is, is a bit of a hallmark of his family at this yeah. point. So the glory how did Simon well. die? How did Simon die? Yeah. Um, well, um, we, we can sort of piece together elements of the battle. It's quite, a, you know, the accounts are quite chaotic, obviously, as mm. they always are. Yeah. <laughs> the, eye, the eyewitness account, um, the eyewitness knew what was going on in the town beforehand, but wasn't mm. quite yeah. as good as, as what, uh, on what was going on in the battle itself. Um, it seems to have been over quite quickly. What happened to set, to set up this battle is, is crucial here because um, Edward and the Earl of Gloucester, um, as they were arriving at Evesham, um, they stopped their, their forces and Edward chose a group of 12 men, 12 of his best men to hunt on the field and kill him. And um, there was to be no, no quarter given but, but more than that, it, it was a, a killing squad. Oh. And oh so this squad was led by Roger Mortimer, um, the husband of Maud Mortimer, who I mentioned yeah. earlier, that they're, they're mm. the nemesis of, mm. of Simon. Yeah. So um, he led this, um, Roger led this, this troop at, at Evesham. Um, they surrounded the Montfortians quite quickly. Simon's knights were, were fighting um, around him and they were, they were mostly all cut down one by one, Simon's horse was killed under him and, um, and oh, then no. he, he, was, he was killed himself. And then the, Roger Mortimer and his men um, went on to, to punish Simon further by mutilating his body. Oh, um, And the, um, he, he cut off Simon's hands and feet. Um, he cut off his testicles and stuffed them into his mouth. And then uh, he cut I was going to say, did he go for the genitals? Because that's quite a common thing, yeah. isn't it? It was like a proper... Um, cut on oh. masculinity, wasn't it? It's like I'm gonna do the ultimate emasculation. Exactly, and I think you know, going on from that, he he put put the testicles inside his mouth, and he he cut off the head and and sent the head oh. back to Maud Mortimer, um, oh his wife, as a trophy. So, oh my god! This is so Game of Thrones, like yeah, probably. yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very Game of Thrones, and I always wonder what Maud Mortimer thought. I mean, yes. I presume Roger expected her to be very impressed and <laughs> very happy about it, and to put it on the mantelpiece, kind of thing. <laughs> like you um, could have just said flowers. This was really unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> what an end, though. Yeah. What yeah. An end. yeah. Yeah, what an end. Um, but, but I mean, I suppose from Simon's point of view, the upshot was that um, because the way that he'd been killed and um, the fact that he'd been willing to die for this cause, yeah. he was seen in the years following as a saint by many people across mm. the kingdom. So people came from all over to visit the Evesham battlefield um, and to, to worship him as a saint. Um, so I think he would have been quite pleased with that. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. What a legacy. Well, I mean, that, I think that's a nice way to kind of finish on Simon. And mm. important, you'd like to move on and know a bit about you, Sophie, if that's okay. Just um, We like to make sure that our listeners, as important as it is, hear, hear about your extremely valuable contribution to the history field. We also like to know a bit about yourself and really what got you into history. Well, my parents would take me take me to castles and um, take me to museums yeah. and, and all of this this sort of thing so I was grew up surrounded by it and I, I grew up just on the way from Porchester Castle which um, oh, uh, I'm still very, very fond of but um so there's that but I, I probably never imagined that I would have a, a career in history my, my family um, wasn't um, academic in that way so it was only really when I, I got to university and I was um, studying history and I had a fantastic supervisor, Professor David Carpenter, who um, might be familiar to many people for his work on 13th century England yeah. and his new, new biography of King Henry III. Um, and it just sort of felt right. Yeah. And um, final stages of my undergraduate degree, I, I really got into um, looking at the role of the church in politics in the 13th century and the role of bishops in politics on the ground and also political thought, political ethics. Mm. Um, and I, I realised, Jay, there's a lot, there's a lot to do here. And I want to do, yeah. <laughs> do it. Yeah, it had a massive impact on these events, but nobody's really looked at it. And yeah. 
um, this is how I ended up looking at, at Simon de Montfort because he was friends with a lot of these um, very famous uh, learned bishops of the 13th century and it, that was a big part of his life so um, but yeah that, that, that's how, how I ended up here. I love that like so many people got into history because of their parents like taking them to history houses mm. like a lot of people say oh my parents had a national trust membership and we'd go to like a different castle every weekend it's so lovely isn't it how you kind of had that historical journey and then obviously got into university and thought ah oh, yes this is what I want to do you've like carved out your niche. I'm oh glad you did carve your niche so yeah. well. <laughs> but I, I think it's really important isn't it I think it, going to these historical sites as partly yeah. as a child because you just become familiar with them and you yeah, feel definitely. it's just kind of like a second home sometimes, isn't yes, it? You definitely. can run around a castle or, or, or a national trust garden. And that is so exciting as a kid, literally running around a castle, isn't it? <laughs> definitely. And, and I always, um, obviously at, at the moment, it's a bit difficult um, with, with the pandemic, but um, always take my students to, we've been to Lincoln and looked oh. at, um, and been to Lincoln Castle and looked at their Magna Carta and gone to the cathedral. Mm. Last year, we went to Edward I's um, Welsh castles, mm-hmm. uh, Conwy and Carnarvon, just because I think you really understand a site when you're there, don't you? And you just yes, yes, help to spark your imagination. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important with history. I think you can do so much in terms of books and lecturing and even podcasts, but until you literally get yourself to a place, you can yeah. imagine it. And th- I think places like castles and sites still have this captivity and magic to them yeah. that can bring the history to life. You can visualise it. And I can, yeah, it's really important. I still remember my school trip to Hampton Court Palace as being like the best <laughs> day of my life. I was absolutely obsessed with the Tudors. I think every kid goes through like a Tudor phase, don't they? <laughs> and yeah, Hampton Court, was, that was such a highlight. <laughs> Anyway, so to finish up, the next section, um, we always do this, is inspired by the podcast, The Good, The Bad and The Rugby. And I'm just going to ask you a few questions and we just want your first immediate answer. Don't think too much about it. Just go, just jump in. <laughs> go for it. So are you ready? Should I jump straight in? Sure. Right. What is your favourite historical figure of all time? Is anyone? <laughs> Robert Grosstest. I was going to say, I... say Simon, but... <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, so, so Robert Grosstest was, he was one of Simon's best friends, actually. Yeah. But he was, he was a Bishop of Lincoln. Um, yeah. So as I said, I, I kind of started off working on, on um, bishops and their role in politics and their scholarship. Mm. Um, so, so what really appeals to me about Robert Grosstest, or why I find him so fascinating? Firstly, because he was he was one of the great philosophers, theologians, and scientists of the Middle Ages, mm. and not not everyone's heard of him today. I, I sometimes really? think Thomas Aquinas hadn't come along and stolen the title of big medieval philosopher. <laughs> everyone would be talking about Robert yeah. Grosstest. So he he did science as much as he did theology and mathematics and medicine and, and everything else. And he came up with a theory about sort of the creation of the universe. Yeah. And looking at sort of the, the movement of light and matter, oh, which wow. has been hailed as, as the forerunner of the Big Bang theory. So That's amazing. Um, yeah, he he was an absolute visionary, um, a very committed bishop as well in his diocese. But also, I find his his personal story really fascinating. Mm. Um, so he achieved all of this really coming from very challenging um circumstances he, he seems to have come from a, a peasant family a very poor family which would have as it would today for most people and, and certainly did then would have spoken against his chances of, mm. of um, making it big in life but um he was sort of talent spotted by by a man a, a, a rich man in the town mm-hmm. as a child who paid for his education and so he <laughs> rose up through through the universities to become this this amazing scholar and he didn't he didn't get to be a bishop until his mid-60s so mm. i always think that wow. you know people struggling in their careers he's a bit of an inspiration yeah he, for us all. yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he didn't have he didn't have that kind of social capital you know he didn't have a great patrons for instance yeah. to give him positions so he had to work his way up and mm. um and he he kept on learning he um he learnt he learned Greek in his 60s in order to translate Aristotle so again I always think he's a kind of a a challenge yeah yeah yeah, he's a kind of he's a role model I think um for people who 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 sort of want to be want to commit to 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 education and never um, too old to do anything education and dedication Mm. amazing oh what an inspirational figure he is (laughs) and so flip that question on its head then do you have a least favorite historical figure 
anyone that jumps to mind is just thinking, ugh. I don't think I do. I don't think I have a least favourite historical figure. Um, everyone's complex, aren't they? Everyone's complex. Um, but just what, what has been playing on my mind recently or, or for a while, I think, mm. um, is, is a kind of a, a bit of an issue with the way that, that some particular medieval, fig, medieval figures are celebrated perhaps wrongly. Okay. And, you know, I think it was only the other day in the House of Commons, uh, one of our, our illustrious uh, leaders, Brian <laughs> <laughs> Hart, is this great English hero. Oh, no. And, and I was, I was um, yeah. you know, the, the whole kind of heroising of people like that, I think, is a bit yeah. of a problem. But um, I always think, well, Richard Lionheart was a hero in his time, definitely. But he also did some very problematic things. And yeah. you know, he, he was responsible, essentially, for a war crime in, at, at the Siege of Acre. Mm. So I always find it strange how some people choose some medieval figures really to celebrate and others to demonise. But they end yeah. up celebrating people who, for, 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 for reasons that are beyond me, I think. Yeah, that's um, a really interesting so, point. Yeah. I wouldn't say he's my favourite figure. It's just uh, you know that yeah. that's what's been in my mind in the way that people see these these figures. Definitely, no, it's that's definitely a pet hate. Yeah. yeah, I hate when like historical figures are used badly. That's definitely the mm. most annoying thing in the world. And yeah, politicians seem to do it all the time. <laughs> so next one, if you went on a road trip, which three people from history would join you your car? Now you don't even have to fill the car up. You've got three spaces. Is there yeah. anyone? would get would you would you just go with simon would you would you make a second edition for the book would you have simon in your car with you with <laughs> eleanor questions yeah with eleanor well simon and eleanor would be one choice um you probably think i'm a bit weird if i go for a car of bishops um, <laughs> no. no not at all I love that. but um, there's a joke in there <laughs> yeah three <laughs> bishops and a historian <laughs> yeah no th there is definitely and you know there's there's a punchline there somewhere um <laughs> Yeah, so I, I'm not sure I would choose um, Simon and Eleanor. Um, I, I suppose I feel like if I chose um, a car with Robert Grostest, yeah, so, um, mm -hmm. I mentioned, but also a couple of the other big figures of the age, like um, Stephen Langton, who was of Canterbury in the early 13th century. He's He was famous as a Carter in the 13th century, and he he was the one who... Uh, in 1225 stepped up with the rest of the bishops to to enforce Magna Carta by sentence of excommunication mm. and if it hadn't been for that and his role in that Magna Carta would have been would have been lost I think mm. so um, there's him and I, I probably pick a third which is Edmund Abingdon um, who was Stephen Langton's protege and later Archbishop oh, yeah. of Canterbury okay. was yeah. also kind of a, a, you know, Magna Carta so I, I choose them, I choose that kind of party really, not partly because you could have a really good conversation, you know, you could have a really yeah. good discussion about, um, you know, the, the events of the day and politics yeah. and religion and rights and wrongs. Well, they've known so much, wouldn't they? They're at the centre of everything, yeah. aren't they? Exactly. So, and they, they always they also liked testing out different problems and challenges mm. and both kind of intellectual challenges, but moral challenges. You know, what would you do if you were put in this position? So <laughs> I think that would make for an interesting um, journey. Um, you think in the car you could be playing like Snog, Marry, Avoid and having like all these really fun car <laughs> games because they'd know all of the gossip. <laughs> I think I think they'd like a car game. I, it might not be Snog, Marry, Avoid, but they'd have some kind of version with medieval theologians, you yeah. know, like the test support and oh, that would be brilliant. Uh, doors yeah. or something. The head. <laughs> um, so they'd do that, but um, I think also... <laughs> It's, it's kind of been on my mind at the moment, I think, as well, because um, so my early work was on how how these these figures, they obviously they had their responsibilities for the church, but mm. they and their, their, their flock, but they also saw it as a big responsibility um, to, to play a part on the political stage and um, particularly to speak the truth to power and to mm. hold the government to account. Um, yeah. So at any time that the king was being unjust, it was up to the bishops to, to step up and, and tell him that he needed to to change his ways and they you know they could threaten him particularly with excommunication to, to make him do this um but also just having the kind of the, the strength of character to speak out and um challenge bad government when yeah. um 
it probably wasn't in your own best interest, but it was in the best interest of, of the country. Mm. And so I, I, I've been thinking about this recently and thinking, um, you know, having the kind of um, uh, people in power or people in, in those kind of positions where who are willing to challenge, who are willing to call out um, bad government. Mm. Um, you know, we could take the car um, down to Westminster, I think. <laughs> oh, I like that idea. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Final question then. What would you say has been the highlight of your career so far? Has been any lovely moments that you'll always remember? That's it's a really good question. Um, (laughs) It's it's difficult. Um, I think the Simon de Montfort book would probably be a bit of a a bit of a highlight. Um, Mm -hmm. But probably some of the trips that I've had with my students on our you know to to, to, um, Conway and Carnarvon. Um, over the years, um, we've been on a few of those now. I, I always find that a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And also, I think you know, when when I was working on Magna Carta, when I was um, before I came to Lancaster University, um, I got to do all sorts of um, awesome things, including looking, you know, getting to see the original twelve fifteen Magna Cartas. That was really special. Yeah. Um, so um, I remember walking into going into an archive um, and looking at a, a later reissue of Magna Carta and it was taken out of the case for me. Yeah. Um, I could sort of hold it in my hands. And um, that's just, I think as a historian, I think these moments where you're, you're getting to, to kind of share history with other people, but then yeah. also just there, it's you and a manuscript that yeah. just transports you back. Mind blowing, isn't it? It is, honestly, it's mind blowing. Oh. Well, brilliant. Thank that. What a lovely, um, what a lovely little story to end on. Thank you so much for talking to us today. This yes, has been fantastic. You. Yeah, it really has. Everyone buy the books. I think yes. it's fantastic. We'll post links on our Twitter yes. account along with a photograph of the cover because it's absolutely beautiful. It is. Thanks Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, it's been fantastic to talk oh, to you guys. Thank you. No problem. Thank you for joining us. That was the lovely Sophie Ambler talking about her book, The Song of Simon de Montfort. Join us next week when we're joined by Dr. Dan Spencer and looking at his book, Castles in the War of the Roses. In the meantime, don't forget to like, share, retweet, follow and get in touch with us through our Twitter account at Karki Malarkey. Until next time, I'm Olivia Smith. And I'm Phoebe Style. Thank you for listening. This is Karki Malarkey signing off.